This is the intro song for the Never Daily podcast that we do called The Hugs Podcast. Let's start by taking a deep breath of something, preferably air. And as the emotional, pensive guitar music comes in, let all of your worries go. Take another deep breath and prepare yourself for this episode. It might suck. Or... It might free your earballs to soar with the beagles. This is the Hugs Podcast. Welcome to the Hugs Podcast for another Never Daily episode of the Hugs Podcast. I'm the operator. I'm Jack Luna. I'm Kent Chungus. And we are 11. 50. Maybe we 50, just, maybe we won't do that anymore. We'll just, I think people probably will get, figure out who we are. Mm. So, uh, <clears throat> Anyway, hey, you know what? I thought about this. How many shows? Let's count. Let's count the number of podcasts that we have. Sure. Public and 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 premium extra content. We've got Dark Topic One. We've got Nine One One Calls Podcast with the Operator Two. We've got True Crime Kent Three. And then we jump over to Patreon, which, if you're not familiar with Patreon, is exclusive content, extra content. Right. Where we put, it's kind of like the HBO of podcasting in a way, right? It's like, you know, you pay, you pay us $5, we give you a billion other things. Not billion, let's count them up. <laughs> so we also have uh, Dark Calls, which is the 911 Calls offshoot, which is, I, I would say, Dark Chocolate version. Yeah, Black Label. That's four. Mm-hmm. Black Label. What else we got? Brutal. We've got Brutal, which is in the name. Yeah. <laughs> That's five. We've got... We've got uh, Hugs, uh, which we're doing right now. Six. Hugs, six. Do we have any others? Oh, well, and then we got some extra special stuff, right? Tier 13. So if you don't pay $5, if you pay $13 a month, you get the Tier 13 stuff, which is everything that falls under... Um, 12 O'Clock Shadows, which is kind of like its own channel. And we get Kent's True Crime Kent Campfire. That'll come once in a while, yeah. But it's also, um, Kent and I are starting to do something called Something Else. So with Dark Topic, you hear my son at the start say, can we talk about something else? And Kent and I talk about that something else, which is just Ooh, about fun. anything, right? So I put that in that category. Death every time. Oh, weird. Okay. Usually involving death. Yeah. Something macabre. Didn't hear didn't hear about that one at the board board meeting. So, okay, <laughs> something else. So it's, uh, I can also tell that you didn't have a whole lot of marketing advice on the name. So we're going to go with that. So that's eight. Mm-hmm. So we'll call that eight. And then we have Freestyle Scary, which is nine. It's me just getting drunk and starting to talk in a video and telling you a scary story from my life or whatever. That's one, sure. They're so good. I love them. And then I believe we haven't, uh, the operator, uh, that guy has not done this one yet, but 9-1, which is 
911 calls with only the operator comes rounds us out at 10 shows that's a lot guys we've got a lot yeah, we got a lot going a lot on. going on we do, we do 911 calls uncut too over on patreon as well but you can't consider that an extra but but for the amount of time we speak it's like 45 minutes long additional onto the 911 calls so you could consider that another podcast that's true the uncut because we talk about we really do we got to find some more topics because we've really we've beat up a couple topics ad nauseum on the uncut so we've got some freshies coming up mm-hmm do you guys ever worry about running out of subject no, matter? No, because you, us three just did an entire podcast before we started recording here about... That's a good point. Like, yeah. None of it yeah. was scripted. Yeah. I'll tell you why I don't worry about it is because for some reason the world, and this, this might show my hand on where I stand on this, the world is really trying to take away my gun, but really not doing much about taking it away from a criminal. So because of that, we are... Good. <laughs> we'll there will fine. always be more content. <laughs> we'll be just fine. Okay. Well, um, you know, let's get right into it. So we've historically had Jack go first. He tells a story. Then Kent and then me. This time let's change it up. And Jack, you go first. <laughs> and then Kent will go. And then and then I'll, I'll round up the... I'll, I'll ramrod. I'll ramrod, which is I bring up the rear. Gotcha. Oh, my. All right. We've been talking about the operator's uh, swearing and how he's up from zero from preschool all the way to grade five recently. And now yeah. he's, he's delving into, uh, he's trying to get to high school, but it's only about- I don't know how to do it. I feel like, isn't there a movie called, okay, what's the one where they're just like, they're swearing all the time and they're trying to get beer for a party? That's super bad. Is that super bad? That's also the plot for like 13 movies from the 80s. <laughs> Good mm-hmm. point. But like I remember I just saw a clip from that where they're like walking to or from the gas station. And like all of the swearing they were doing, it was like swear training camp. Not in context. It was just like sentences full of swear words. I feel like when I swear, if I ever let one let one fly, I feel like it's in that kind of lack of context, you know, socially... Awkward. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm going to do my best not to swear through my piece because I know that that's distracting when you come in and go swear word. Thank you. I'm going to try, but I'm going to give you some other stuff that you might need to cut out here with my story here. I am a little befuddled here because you put me first and normally I go first, so this is a little bit different, but here's my question. As a child, guys, were you ever in a moment where you felt like it was possible you could have been kidnapped an operator. I'm going to ask you first this time. Do you recall a situation where you possibly could have been kidnapped when you were a kid? Yes. A, one, I will tell you that I swam at Lake Sammamish mm. State Park. Ted Bundy territory, uh, no? Yes. Literally a quarter mile from my house was where Ted Bundy was stalking his victims. And I swam at that beach all the time. At the same time where he's like, you know, scoping out people. So I feel with a little subtle variation, I could have been a victim of Ted Bundy had I been... 15 years older and female? With with a black bob? (laughs) Yes, in my head. He had that. Just a couple tweaks. If I had identified differently, I feel like... I could have been a victim. But no, uh, another one. You were so not a threat from Ted Bundy. You would like, have been like Ann Rule. Like a lot of people are like, oh, Ann Rule was lucky. It's like, no, Ann Rule was ugly. <laughs> that sounds like a book. Somebody should write that and book. And I'm just joking. Ann Rule was ugly. 
<laughs> I love, I'm a huge fan of Anne Rule. Just saying. Maybe the reason why he didn't go after her is because she wasn't his type is all I'm saying. I'm going to sound really ignorant right now because I've never read an Anne Rule book. But it all kicked off, because, right? Because she... Well, she worked at a suicide hotline center with Ted Bundy. Okay. So they were together on nights taking these suicide hotline mm. calls. And later on, she realized, oh, that's the guy that I worked with. And he's a serial killer. I'm able to get in touch with him and make a lot of money off of books. And she was great at writing. I mean, she did a Green River Killer. She did a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, she did. Yeah. But she thinks she was lucky. Okay. And I'm just saying, maybe... She was in the same situation you were. I lived one mile from Columbine when Columbine oh my happened. God. But are you the Zodiac killer? <laughs> Does tragedy follow you? What are you? It <laughs> seriously, it was it was creepy. I had a studio apartment one mile away from Columbine when it happened. I was going to the art institute uh, in Denver. I feel like my Anne Rule version of that would be if I like, wrote a book that said my time near Columbine. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, yeah, you were there, but yeah, you know, it really wasn't a thing. David Hogg did it. Yes, he did. To answer your question, though, I have one blurry memory, and I'm guaranteeing you that it was not as frightening as it came across. I was probably four, and we're walking down the sidewalk, and I'm pretty sure I'm holding my mom's hand. And then we're walking down the sidewalk, and we're going to breakfast somewhere. And there's a bunch of, like, old, like, grizzled biker dudes sitting in chairs on the sidewalk. And we walk by him, and this one biker dude goes, Come here, yabby, yabby, yabby. And he gets off of his chair, and he, like, comes at me like he's going to grab me. And he's like, I'm going to get you, cat. And he was probably doing it because I was super adorable. Um, but in my head, it took my mom, like, a week literal week i slept with her every night because i was convinced that that guy was trying to kidnap me because in my head that checked the box this is how kidnapping happens a biker grabs you from your mom and steals you and it was that simple it's gotta be but that that's really it it's always a biker yeah <laughs> always <laughs> rarely actually ever a biker if you think about it but yeah anyway so no other than that so no all right <laughs> Enjoyed the <laughs> two stories later. No, enjoyed the story. How about you, Ken? <sighs> so uh, I lo- I grew up playing baseball. I still love baseball. It was that was my sport? Um, it was the only sport I was ever good at. And one time during little leagues, when I was playing the young buck ball, you know, I was probably like I don't know, ten, eleven years old. And did you guys play baseball growing up? I did. Yeah. Yes. So you know how, like, after the season, you got the tournaments, right? And the tournaments will last all day. So you might have a game at, like, 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then you've also got a game at 6 o'clock at night. So there's that weird period. Yeah. So what my family, this was a different time. This was the 90s. Uh, they would just drop me off at the ballpark with, like, 10 bucks in my in my baseball uniform and leave, and I would just be at the baseball park all day eating nachos and hot dogs and running around with my friends. When game time came, we'd play our game, our baseball game, and then we'd, you know, go back into the baseball park and after we were done and play and do whatever. Where in my hometown where the baseball park is, the Little League Baseball Park, is also where they do the state fair. So there's like a big arena behind it. I say big. This is Rockcastle County, Kentucky. It looks like it's basically just concrete seats and a mud <laughs> arena. That's That's what it is. But also behind that is like these really like run, like it's kind of like the the ghetto. So there's a lot of shady characters, and one time me and my friends are playing in the gravel in this gravel hill that they had put behind the baseball stadium by ourselves, and this like sketchy looking crackhead fellow coming from those apartments 
comes walking up and he's like, hey, guys. And we were like, oh, hello. you know. And he's like, you guys want to see something cool over there beneath the bleachers? Cool. And, of course, uh, my two buddies were like, no. But I was like, I would. I think I would like to see something cool beneath <laughs> those bleachers. Because as we learned from one of the TCA episodes, I wasn't good at, you know, picking out danger. That's how <laughs> I ended up getting probably fondled in a, in an old trailer. That's why you got such a bad memory <laughs> of your childhood. That's why I got such a bad memory. Yeah. But I was like. Uh, I love things that are cool, and I also think those ble- bleachers look neat. <laughs> and you seem trustworthy. <laughs> so, yeah, let's do this. And then, thankfully, uh, my buddies were like, what do you do? No, you can't go with that guy. We don't know him. He has track marks. We didn't know what track marks was, but that's I- – I- I'm guessing he probably had track marks. Yeah. And then one of my buddies had the, had the like, was intelligent enough to go, I'm going to go tell my dad that you're trying to get us to follow you. And then he ran off. Mm. And then oh. I went and told my dad, who was also a criminal, but my dad wasn't like the the sexual type criminal. He just was more of a an outlaw kind of fella. You know, mm-hmm. he did, he may do whatever you got, but he's not going to yeah. do you. Mm. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not forcefully. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad... My dad tried to get vigilante justice, and he tried to go from like apartment to apartment, find out who this guy was, and he was just gonna just gonna beat him up, and he never did find him. And that's the time that I almost got uh, kidnapped. Wow! The end. The end. All right. Well, wow. thankfully, neither one of you actually got kidnapped. You just smelled it for a second. But I think a lot of people have that. <laughs> I didn't even smell it. That's the problem. <laughs> he wanted you to smell it underneath those bleachers in Rockcastle County. Yeah. So for me. I uh, lived in this neighborhood, and there was a guy across the street. He was adopted. I was about to say his name, but I won't. His name was Chris. <laughs> yeah. And uh, our family kind of had problems with him. He was, he was you know, always ca- causing issues. And I remember I'd walk past the house. He'd be out front, and he'd show me his dick Swearing. when I was walking. Sorry, his uh, penis. Swearing. Yes. Oh, I apologize. And uh, from from across the street. Probably, blame, I'll probably beep out both of those. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, hey. And I'd look over, and he'd be standing there with his his uh, penis. Swear. He was hanging out. Like, hey, what's going on? And keep walking, right? And he was, he'd like take his thumb and run it across his throat. Hey, run his thumb across his throat. And uh, the reason why is because my mom was always kind of giving him shit. And he didn't like us because he didn't like our mom. And one night he broke into our house and uh, came in in the middle of the night, broke in. And I have a bedroom. I had a bedroom at the time with my brother that was right there, and he walked past our room, found my mom's purse, thankfully, and found my stepfather's wallet, I believe. But he, he grabbed her purse, and then he walked right back out in the backyard, took all of her money, and left the purse in the backyard. When we got up the next morning, come out, go to eat breakfast, and we could see our mom's purse out in the backyard. And I always think about that. He never got arrested for this, but we I'm, I'm assuming it was him. And the reason I'm assuming is because he told me it was him like five years later. Oh. <laughs> wow. What, was his dick out? That this kid... <laughs> yeah. Hey. Runs his thumb across his throat. Don't know what that means. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yeah. Was right outside your room in the middle of the night, kid. And uh, I always think about that as being like, I had this crazy, weirdo, capable of anything type character. Because when I've um, researched dark topics recently in the past, that's the type of guy. 
adopted, kind of has screws loose, doesn't fit anywhere, always committing petty crimes, and he ramps up. He was right outside my door for a moment, you know? And I always think of that as being the closest I came to maybe something possibly horrific happening in the vein of, of true crime. It was right there for a moment. Anyways... I got a story for you. What's interesting about that is, and I've said it very many times before, that I'm always confounded by the amount of stuff that people get away with. Like, I'm honestly, I'm like, if I if I tried to steal a pack of Smarties from a <laughs> 7-Eleven, I know I'd end up in jail. I know I would. It's just, it seems like my dumb luck. But I think I've come to something now that I try to live my life with my eyes trained on the law, right? Like, just obey the law. And it's so much so that I don't even have to think about it anymore. I just don't violate the law. That's just a thing. Mm -hmm. But I've always been confounded by how these people get away with what they get away with. Even like somebody that does something heinous and then it goes all the way through the court and they get away with it. I think what it comes down to is it's the same as me, just the other side where it's like, this person has lived so far outside of the law for so long that the law doesn't even really know how to handle them and so the law when they when they when the police collect them when the questions are asked when the arrests are made when this and that there are mistakes made yep so many so much so because the because the preponderance of their illegal activities is so significant that the law people misstep yep and that's how they get off it's 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 honestly the careful criminal yeah. That ends up in prison. Yeah, it seems to me. Because the guy that just lays waste to the law, the legal system, and, you know, the sense of any sense of law is the one that gets away because you can't you can't put all of the stuff they did into a box. Well, look at, it's crazy. Look at True Crime Kent. There's, uh, what was his name? Ken McElroy? Yeah. Yeah. Rex. Rex. He, he'd, been, he'd been screwing with the whole town forever and been doing all these legal things, but it's like he does so much that what do you choose to pick? pick him off on. Yeah. Right? And it's like, oh, well, that's just Ken. I mean, he's a bit of a troublemaker. But then some one of us yeah. does something like that one time, and it's like, well, we're going to snuff that out. You can't snuff out a raging bonfire. You just got to wait for that thing, that bonfire, to try to burn up the whole town. And when it started to do that, then the town itself was forced to kill that man. Right? Sorry. With guys like that, like with the Chris that I'm talking about, he was doing so much. Like him running his thumb across his throat at me. If I did that to somebody else, like a younger kid than me, it's like one time, boom, warning sign. But they hear that he does that. It's like, oh, he does stuff like that all the time. He's got a few screws loose. I feel like we're really kind of glazing over the fact. We're really focusing heavy on the throat thing. And we're not talking about the fact that his penis Swear. was out. Well, I feel like, am I crazy? Not. I'm out. You're not. It just happens so much more often. <laughs> and you're right. I should have been worried okay. about that. I mean, okay. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. I feel like with, with problem makers like that, though, I think communities kind of have this mentality that eventually, you know, we're talking about a, a, a fire that's, it'll burn out. Mm -hmm. Like, eventually this problem will take care of itself. He'll get a, he'll get a dose of heroin that's got fentanyl <laughs> in it, or somebody <laughs> will beat him to death, yeah. or... <laughs> and that just never happened with Ken Rex McElroy. And they finally, okay, well, we've got to put this fire out. And they, yeah. boy, howdy. Boy, howdy, did they. They boy. really put that fire out. Cue the music. I'll get right into it. Today, I want to share an awkward hug. One that may leave you feeling in need of one more than like you just received one. I was researching a dark topic that was to cover a man known as the Yosemite Killer. 
and in the process uncovered something hug-worthy or need a hug-worthy. The Yosemite Killer was an unassuming 36-year-old handyman back in 1997, working at the Cedar Lodge Motel just outside an entrance to Yosemite National Park. His name was Kerry Stainer, and later he would admit that he'd harbored fantasies of murdering women ever since he was seven years old. Well, long story short, after a couple of years working at the motel, where unbeknownst to countless prospective victims, they had come and gone like gazelles under the eye of a lion on the Serengeti, Stainer finally pounced, unable to contain himself any longer. From February to July of 1999, four victims, two women and two teenage girls, disappeared from the motel he worked at. The first three were 42-year-old Carol's son, her daughter, 15-year-old Julie's son, and Julie's friend, a 16-year-old Argentine exchange student named Savina Peloso. Carrie Stainer, a.k.a. the Yosemite Killer, kidnapped and raped and murdered the mother, Carol, and the exchange student, Savina. Their bodies were found burnt beyond recognition in the trunk of Carol's son's torched Pontiac rental out in the woods. For a short period, the destiny of Carol's daughter... 15-year-old Julie, was a mystery. That is, until investigators received a letter with a map to her body, and the teenager was soon found in a wooded location, and I'll spare details here as this is a family show up. She was dead. Murdered. And a note that accompanied the map that led to her read, quote, We had fun with this one. End quote. The final victim proved to be the end of the line for the budding serial killer Carrie Stainer. He kidnapped Nature Bridge employee 26-year-old Joy Ruth Armstrong. Joy was known in the area for her work for the uh, non-profit environmental education program uh, known as Nature Bridge. And somebody recalled seeing Carrie Stainer's Blue 79 International Scout parked outside her motel room the night she disappeared. Joy was found decapitated. And that's the easiest way I can put that, though maybe omitting the detail entirely would have worked best for you there. Uh, But I just want to convey the depravity of Stainer's killing style. Stainer was brought in for questioning, where he surprised detectives by admitting to all four murders and wanting to commit more, but he was busted. So this leads me to the hug or need a hug portion of my story. This was just a precursor to it. Kerry Stainer, the Yosemite killer, was no stranger to the spotlight uh, that shocking crime brings. His younger brother, Stephen, had been kidnapped when they were kids. Kerry had been 11 when his 7-year-old brother had vanished. His 7-year-old brother's name was Stephen, like I said. I find it interesting that when Kerry, the older brother, was, and the Yosemite killer, was later questioned as to whether uh, this whole incident from his childhood with his younger brother had been kidnapped had anything to do with his becoming a serial killer later in life, Kerry stated no. He'd been thinking about killing since he was seven years old, seven being the age his brother, Stephen, was when he was stolen. And I have no further time or thought on that, just interesting that he would say seven. It feels like he must have been affected at least subconsciously by what happened to his brother when they were kids. And here's what happened. On December 4th of 1972... Seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was kidnapped. This is the younger brother to the guy I just talked to you about, the Yosemite killer. Stephen Stainer was kidnapped in Merced, California, by a child molester named Kenneth Parnell and an accomplice. 
Parnell had been convicted of impersonating a police officer and abducting then raping a young boy who was eight years old back in 1951. He served four years for this. And the reason he served such small sentences is because back then they would call it something like lewd activity. <laughs> and they would group it all into one section. So you could be the guy that I saw showing your penis across the street. Or you could kidnap and uh, rape an eight-year-old boy and get the same sentence, apparently. <sighs> he escaped prison uh, during his four-year period uh, served for raping an eight-year-old boy, Hugs, uh, but he was recaptured. Still, uh, he only served four years for luring a child by pretending to be a cop before sodomizing a little boy. And I don't know how you're going to be able to censor the story at this point up, but I will at least keep the swears down for you, like I said. It's, um, it's just the way the story is, right? I don't know there's much I can do. I can't. Uh, everyone will, you know what? Everyone will be annoyed if I try to replace every bad word <laughs> or term that you're. Yeah, I'm just going to let it roll painfully. This is very heavy. Are we very recording heavy. a brutal? <laughs> yeah, what's going Because <laughs> I didn't bring the right script for a brutal. In the future, Kent, if I could have you advise Jack on story selection for Hugs Podcast, that would be great. Okay, continue. This was my original hug story because when you first told me about hugs, I thought you meant, oh, another true crime podcast that is going to make people need a hug. So I held off on this until now. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, but I'm going to keep on rolling. I'm glad you... It could have just stayed oh, held off. Okay, yeah, I guess that was an option. You know, you've released the Kraken, so here we here go. We go. <laughs> so he was later convicted of armed robbery in Utah. But by 1972, he was free again and decided to abduct another boy in Stephen Stainer. I gotta keep reminding you that Stephen Stainer is the younger brother of the Yosemite killer I mentioned earlier. Parnell uh, has vowed to himself that he's gonna keep the next child that he gets and make him his son. A son whom he would uh, sexually assault at his leisure. And he succeeded at this. He uh, stole Stephen off the side of the road when he was on his way to school. He told Stephen that he was he called his parents and his parents didn't want him anymore and now he'd been adopted and now he used to call him dad and Stephen was like I'm in a remote cabin getting molested out of nowhere here my parents don't want me anymore um okay I guess I mean you got a gun in my head Parnell had uh help in this kidnapping actually from a man who worked at Yosemite Lodge so a Yosemite connection here as well Parnell told seven year old Stephen again that his parents had given him up they didn't want him anymore. And uh, Stephen had a bit of a strained home life, seven-year-old Stephen, so he didn't want to believe this, but eventually he did. And uh, over the next seven years, Stephen was held in this cabin, routinely assaulted, and even was enlisted to help Parnell lure young boys to Parnell's vehicle on child hunting trips. Stephen would intentionally sabotage these excursions, and they all allegedly failed. Although I have some trouble believing that, but I'm not going to make presumptions. Um, he, he tried so often that you think that maybe once in a while they got a kid. But I, I, the story goes that Stephen, between the ages of 7 and 14, was enlisted by his captor to try to help him lure kids to a vehicle to bring them home. And I believe this, young Stephen intentionally sabotaged them uh, with knowing that he would be punished for, quote, being incompetent. That's what he would call him. That's what Parnell would call Stephen, incompetent. Every time he failed one of these failed kidnappings. <sighs> Stephen's a hero, really. And it, it goes further here. It's, it's, it's difficult to share, but Parnell was so good to young Stephen 
when he wasn't being horrible to him. Like he'd buy him expensive gifts, got him hooked on drinking and smoking and drugs. Good is a word I'm using loosely, of course. Parnell used gifts and substances as a means to control and manipulate his captive. But it worked. Stockholm Syndrome, right? And, and after a while, Stephen, who was renamed Dennis by Parnell, kind of just accepted his fate. But by the time he turned 14, Kenneth Parnell was beginning to lose interest in the growing boy. He likes kids. And uh, he abducted another child with the help of an accomplice named Irvin Murphy. Murphy was a simple man who worked at this motel as an auditor, I believe. Parnell convinced Murphy that he wanted to get boys from rough families to give them a better life. So on February 14th of 1980, after Parnell had scoped out this one particular kid who he said had came from a rough background, which was not true, Murphy abducted five-year-old Timmy White, Timothy White, for Purnell, and brought him to the cabin where Purnell introduced the two, Stephen and Timothy, as brothers now. And you're to call me dad. Of note here, both boys have been abducted walking home from school after a period of being stalked by Purnell. Now, it should go without saying that I'm speeding this up for the hugs format, and I'll get to the awkward hug I'm trying to connect on here right now. But if this were a dark topic, I'd be looking at at least an hour, hour and a half to tell this story. And I don't mean any disrespect to the case by rushing it, only respect to the Hugs podcast uh, and not hijacking or kidnapping this whole episode. Are you guys okay with what's happening so far here? Do you feel like you're being uh, kidnapped right now? I would actually, if we could go back in time, I would tell this story about what happened when you asked us in the beginning. No, I think this is going great. I think this is putting a smile on a lot of faces and um, people are feeling warm, driving to work if it's cold. Can you guys call me daddy through the rest of the episode, though? How how you doing there, huh? I, I can't. Um, when you, you asked if I'm okay with it, um, is this one of the situations where no means no? or? Um, yeah, well, exactly. I'm trying to make you guys both feel like you've been kidnapped right now. Because mm, I definitely, yeah. Okay, daddy. Uh, I just threw up <laughs> a little bit in my mouth. Daddy. Steven Stainer. Yeah. This young captive who's now turned 14 decides that he's not going to let what happened to him happen to this new captive and five-year-old Timothy. Some of it uh, does happen, no doubt, because, you know, two weeks go by before Stephen puts the little boy on his back. He piggybacks him. He's like, hop on, kid. We're getting out of here. And in the middle of the night, while Parnell was working a night shift at a motel, not the motel Stephen's older brother Carrie would eventually steal women from, but a motel that was 20 miles away from it. On March 1st of 1980, two weeks and a day, I guess it would be, after Timothy got uh, kidnapped, he puts him on his back, they leave the cabin, and he walks, and he hitchhikes, and they make it 40 miles to Ukea. Uh, this is the same town where Timothy had been stolen from, five-year-old Timothy, and delivers him to a police station. Parnell was soon arrested and served five years for the whole thing, which I won't get into. But yes, five years for kidnapping and raping two kids, one for years and one for weeks, with the intention for more. This is These are the sentences handed down between the 50s and the 80s when it came to child molestation. Uh, they got off with the pro- with his defense somehow with saying that they wanted to be there, all this crap. And uh, I don't want to get into it. The, uh, it would take me forever. But anyways, once Steven Stainer got back home, he's 14 now. He's a hero. He's very damaged. He's reunited with his parents and his brother, future Yosemite killer, Carrie. Steven had trouble readjusting at home and would even admit he had some regret coming back. 
a difficult thing that has strong connection to Stockholm Syndrome, no doubt. Stephen's father denied him therapy, and everyone took the approach of burying the whole incident. Stephen Stainer, who had been kidnapped here and brought back home himself, was buried at the age of 24 after a motorcycle accident. Hugs? And Kenneth Purnell went back to doing whatever he wanted after his brief prison stint. But this awkward hug isn't over yet, gents. I still got my arms around you, you know? So just relax. Oh, gosh. Call me daddy. Yeah, it's just... Okay, daddy. Feels problematic. <laughs> Kenneth Parnell, the man who had caused this whole mess, is free. His captive is dead. He died in a motorcycle accident. Parnell served five years for kidnapping a child for seven years, sexually assaulting him, raping him, telling him that his parents had given him up, and then kidnapping another child, a five-year-old, off the street and bringing him back and trying to create a small family for themselves where he would probably eventually kill Stephen Stainer when he got to a certain age. He's on the land. He's, he's, he's free by the state. They're like, fine. He's arrested finally again in 2003 for trying to purchase a four-year-old boy. They get him on audio. He's trying to buy a four-year-old boy from a caregiver. He is. Here's a quote from uh, the time from Purnell. Quote, I was looking for one last hurrah. One last Stephen Stainer. One last Timmy White. End quote. Due to the three strikes law, even though by my math he'd been arrested for a rape of a little boy in the 50s, a prison escape, later an armed robbery in Utah, so that was three at least. Then the two kidnappings, countless attempted kidnappings, the rapes and confinements, of course. They hit him with the three strikes law after trying to buy a four-year-old at the age of 71 as a free man somehow. At that point, he was sentenced to life, and he died in prison of natural causes. He was 76. Hugs! <sighs> That's the... Wow. That's it, guys. Well, the, okay. Um, Good stuff, Jack. I just... You got a, st- you got a question? <laughs> we can just move on, guys. I know. I know. It's a lot. It's a- I didn't want to hijack the whole episode. I'll let you guys go. You guys go. Well, there's a really good movie about this mm-hmm. case called I Know My First Name is Steven, released in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really good watch. If And this came to mind while you were talking about I realized I thought I had I knew something about this, and then I remembered watching that uh, movie a couple times. My mom used to watch it mm-hmm. all the time. But it's a good movie. It came out in 1989 called My First Name is Steven. And uh, they cover everything up until, I believe, his, his motorcycle wreck because he was still alive at the time that they had made the movie. Right. Um, but it's a very... Sad story from beginning to end. It makes you feel like you need a hug, though, right? It does. You did. You accomplished that, Eddie. There we go. <laughs> oh, just a oh, barf. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, you know, though, what I will say, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to, I'm trying really, let's see, I'm trying to pull something out to make it. Um, oh, this. How about this? How about this? The, the, when we talk about serial killers and we talk about, you know, people that have done wrong, you know, often the, the, the quick reflex is to be like, oh, well, let's let's analyze the parents. Let's say where they were on this, you know, abuse spectrum or whatever. This is a, such an interesting one because the ripples seem to come from multiple angles and influence multiple people in in this case. You know, it's it's not just – it's not a linear – as linear as, you know uh, – Ted Bundy, who had a mom, and you know that's not and this, you know, very linear in the way that it was. It was. Uh, it seems to have gone. This is very noisy. It's very noisy. See, like I said, if I had to cover it with a dark topic, I would have gone 
bananas with it. There's a lot of stuff I left out. He had accomplices. There was other people involved. Yeah. Also, like letting him out of prison every single time. And there is an interview with uh, Stephen Stainer and his parents in like 1980 by a news program where they have him on a little TV set. And he, you see Stephen Stainer, he's 14, 15 years old, sitting between his parents. And the parents are very like, we're just glad he's home, you know? Yeah. I, I gave up on him, but I guess I was wrong. And it's kind of like they're joking around, like they're on like a panel with a, with a daytime talk show. It's like, this kid has been through mm-hmm. a lot. How about the question is, are you going to put him in therapy? Oh, no. Yeah, like they think everything's going to be normal. That is something that... Um, you see it in narcissists, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you'll see a narcissist who um, who has pushed his his significant other too far, and that person decides to step out on the narcissist, mm-hmm. and you know, in out of their committed relationship, and like, man, you you drove me that you drove me to this, and instead of looking at that and saying, you know what? I did. I want you to be happy somewhere else. The narcissist goes, no, I'm going to win and I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back with me. Like they don't look at the situation normally and they don't look at it and say, oh my gosh, this person wants nothing to do with me. And they've now shown me by their actions by trying to be with someone else. The narcissist says, no, 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 you're mine. I own you. I'm going to get you back. Regardless of emotion. And I think sometimes in these events where like a child is kidnapped and then recovered, it's not narcissism as much, but it's the desperation of parents that that say, I want everything to be like it was. Uh And so they ignore serious red flags or signals and they try to, you know, here's your room, Billy, just like you left it. And that's what they did, man. And he was like, I'm I'm addicted to drugs and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer whenever I want to or alcohol and that's where it came in where he was like did I make the right choice like I'm being really stifled here at home yeah and Purnell dad daddy you know was letting me do whatever I wanted sure I had to do horrible things in the meantime but at least I had my freedom of what he thought he had the Stockholm syndrome right it's a very sick case. Let me ask you guys one more question before we move on here and I'll, I'll focus it maybe I'll focus it on Kent because he seems to be uh, acting like he's least disturbed but I th- believe that he's maybe most disturbed by it um, if you <laughs> lost your mind for seven years and knew that you had stolen two children and had, and then they escaped and then you came back to your own mind once once that all ended, what do you think your personal punishment should be? Would it be five years? Well, first of all, they would have never escaped. <laughs> Jeez. Would you kill yourself? I'd probably kill myself. What about yeah. you, Op? I wouldn't kill myself because, and this isn't a commentary on anybody else's approach to this, but I would view killing myself as cowardly. Good. I want my own way out. I'd do everything I could to say, hey, I was not in my right mind, but I ruined some lives and I did some things terrible. I need to be, lock me up, throw away the key. That's what I would I, I think would it's do. overlooked. Yeah, I got you. I think it's really overlooked at that time how bad this was. I think we all understand how bad this was. But to take a kid who's a child at seven years old and turn him into a completely different person over a period of seven years and attempt to get more children during that time and then actually steal another five-year-old boy and do things to him, and then they're pushed to the point where that kid has, you know, they escaped. It's not like he let them go. And they give him, it was actually a seven-year sentence of which he he, uh, served five years. Are we in the Twilight Zone? After having previously been been arrested for doing this 
in the past. Anyways, we've spoken enough on this. I, I'd like to hear another story because I'm starting to feel like I'm I'm kidnapped by my own story at this point. Yeah, you need you need a hug. You know, I keep trying to figure out how you could have angled this to be a more positive kind of fun hugs like uh, a smiley story. And I think the only way to do it would be to. How old did you say? That this fellow was whenever he tried his last seventy seventy one he referred to it, 70, last, he referred 71, to it. 71 years old but he had a long period there where he was retired well who knows if he was still committing acts that he didn't get caught for but as far as where so you could have angled this to where like you know coming out of retirement for one big game like oh the last my big game unless <laughs> hurrah I should have called it one last hurrah right yeah like he's putting on the boots strapping up the boots dusting them off. Pedophiles boots. I don't know what they wear. Probably Timberlands. But pull him out of the closet, and there's a moment where he's got his elbows on his knees, and he's looking down at the ground, and he's thinking about his whole life like Johnny Cash before a concert, and he's gonna he's got one more in him. Yeah, and it's one like more, a Nike you know. commercial where it's oddly dark, but there's like light with some steam, and he looks forward like I'm gonna do this, and then everything's yeah. sort of slow motion. Yeah. You have a point where he's hitting a punching bag mm. and then a point where he's in the shower and he's got his arm, his hand against the wall and his head is down and the water's dripping off his nose. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get there, Kent. I mean, I was dealing with the Yosemite killer there as well, right? This story is jam-packed. Yeah. I don't know where the hug came yeah. in to be honest. Oh, well, it was. It was a hawk. It was an awkward hug. And I think the hug came when he put the kid on his back at piggyback right. See, I, that that if I was doing a dark topic, a big swath of that would have been that piece. Where it's like, hey, I've gone through this, but I'm not going to let you go through it, kid. And hop on my back. I piggyback my kids all the time. I'm sure you guys do it too. And he piggybacked 40 miles. They did get some help with um, hitchhiking and all that. But that whole scene, that's a movie right there in itself of, of, of escaping. Yeah. That's a hug for me. Therein, maybe maybe that's the awkward hug in this one is is that life isn't always a Hollywood movie. Lest we forget that in every Marvel movie... When the hero Marvel characters are high-fiving each other on their floating ship above the clouds. And we did it again, guys. Down below, for the next three years, they're rebuilding some metropolitan city. True. There's no way that the alien's tail that took out seven high-rises didn't kill thousands of people. Oh, yeah. So many (laughs) dead people. It's like 9-11 times. By 10, you know. Nine. Yeah, so we Hollywood eyes, and we go for the closure, and then we don't want to look at anything else. But life is noisy. Life is messy. The kid that became— A lot of collateral damage. Yes, and and uh, there's really sometimes nothing you can do about it, and sometimes the damaged just get more damaged and do more damage, and, you know, they started out innocent, and then they weren't. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a noisy world. I'll tell you real fast before we move on is that Parnell, as a child, and it's something I would have gone further on too, is that he he was molested and all that kind of stuff too. He tried to kill himself a couple of times. He shot himself in the gut, I believe, and once he jumped off the top of a barn and landed <laughs> on wood with uh, nails in it. He was like, uh, oh. he wanted to be uh, Mick Foley, dude, dude, love. It's a Mortal Kombat fatality. <laughs> yeah, didn't work, and he ended up living a full life. Finish nails. <laughs> I'm going to pee in a bucket in the corner here while you guys start up the next story. If you hear me, I'm sorry. Oh. Okay. Okay. Hey, Kent, uh, who invited Jack on? (laughs) This was your idea. Is he a homeless person? I I am starting to learn, (laughs) Nuth. Like, 
hey, we're going to do a podcast about positive. <laughs> you know, he first off, you know, you USA, have you ever been kidnapped? And he give, he brings the darkest, grittiest Quentin Tarantino sweaty shit swears shit to the table where he's uh, yeah. literally peeing in the. <laughs> wow, I oh. <laughs> Yep. You know what, though? Someday, what's going to happen is Jack's, you know, peeing in buckets. But one day, history is going to look back and they're going to be like, that guy was crazy. (laughs) But look what he gave us. He gave us. He was a real trailblazer. (laughs) He was a trailblazer. So that's what he's going for. He's he's, uh, You got a lot of bubbles in your pee in your pee bucket. Is that good luck? Or is that just tea? No, that's usually cancer. (laughs) And that's probably hops. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, guys. Full out hijacked the beginning hops. of this episode. And I knew it would happen, but who's up? I think it Thank went you. great. Good. I think it went great. Ooh. I think it, w- it went. It, it went a certain direction. <laughs> I think you nailed the point of the story, but missed the point <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Could not be... That better. <laughs> I think that might become the new uh, tagline to Hugs Podcast. <laughs> That's good stuff. Nailing the stories, missing the point. <laughs> oh, good job, good job, Jack. Thank you. Kent, Kent, you're uh, you're up, Kent. So I'm going to try to bring us up out of this muck that that Jack has dragged us into. Because uh, I want to just kill myself right now. Um, we'll start off with uh, with. So, Op, have have you, has anybody ever had to rescue you from a deadly situation? Uh, yes, yes, actually. Would you like Would you like to tell us about it? <laughs> yes, one time my friend and I were were up in the in the Sawtooth Mountains. The camp was down below by a lake, and there was this big giant mountain face behind our camp and we decided to go hike and so we took parachute cord which is not rope parachute cord is a hollow hollow cord in the middle of it is filled with cotton candy it has no uh it can't take weight so you could you can't you can't hang from it it's not smart but that's what we had and we were stupid kids so we went hiking and we started climbing this cliff face to try to get to the top and it was one of those situations where as we're going we realize we are scaling things that we can't get back down there is no way back down and so mid cliff we realize the only way is up and and we just you pray that you've got there's something next foothold is there the next handhold is there my friend actually fell off the cliff face and he landed uh, 15 feet below me on the only tree that was growing out of the side of this cliff face. And I thought for sure he was a, a goner. Uh, he landed on this, like, just boom, you know, 15 feet down, dunk, just hugging this tree. And where he landed gave him a direct route to the bottom again. So inches from death, he has this route to go. I was amazed. I watched him go down because he had to go try to find help for me. I'm getting cold. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but in in rock climbing, there's something called sewing machine leg where you're trying to hold a position on on the rock face and your leg involuntarily just starts jittering 
up and down, da 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 da, and you can't stop it. So I had gotten sewing machine leg in one of my legs, so I had to take one foot off of the cliff, and I uh, uh, and and sit there like with three three holds on the rock. Then actually I proceeded and I got to the very top of the cliff just to find that I was literally three feet short from being able to reach the summit to like, I could not get to the very, very top. And I was rescued. They, they came around the back of the mountain and had to hike up the backside of this mountain and come over the top and finish off the last three feet of my journey to rescue me. So wait, you were, you were, you were three feet away the whole time, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's the most harrowing three foot height I've ever been on. It was crazy. No. Mm. No, that was very scary though. What about you, daddy? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll make it quick. I've taken up enough time, man. I got lost when I was, I think, 12 in the woods. We were on this island. I wasn't familiar with the area. Everybody went for a walk. My mom, my stepfather, my brother, these people that we were there with. And the two groups got separated. And I was in the behind group, so I went to go run up to meet up with the people that were ahead. And they weren't there, like forever. And what had happened was they dove into the bush, into the, where the house was, and I just kept going because I didn't know the area. Kept on following trails, and I went onto this other trail, and I ended up way, way out. And my dumb, young, 12-year-old self just kept walking. I hadn't heard the phrase like, or the, the, the advice, if you ever get lost, just stay and put, you know, stay, stay where you are. I just kept going. And I've alluded to this story, I think, in the past hugs, but I've told it on a dark topic in the past where there was, like, uh, crows flying around my head, vultures and stuff. Like, they had picked me out. It was very weird. It was starting to get dark. I was lost for hours. I kept going and going. I was at the point where I walked into the woods and I was starting to create a shelter for myself. Starting to, because I had done stuff like that. I was in a Boy Scouts, so I went to camps. And suddenly I heard a vehicle approaching, like a four-wheeler, and I didn't want to come out. I didn't want to come out because I was worried it was going to be the guy who was going to come and take me. In my mind, I was like, I'm going to end up in a cabin. And for seven years, they're going to call me Dennis. That's what they called Stephen Stainer, by the way. I think I mentioned that. They made him his name Dennis. They're going to call me Dennis for the next seven years. And I got up the balls to step out of the woods and wave my hands. And the kid came up to me, and he was like, are you? I was like, yeah. He's like, jeez, man, we're about to call like rescue services. You've been gone forever. And I hop on the back. And they took me back to his cabin, and he sexually assaulted me for the next five years. So. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh. Oh. No, they brought me. The, I thought you were gonna. I thought it was gonna turn out you're gonna be like twenty foot from the back of an Applebee's. <laughs> uh, no, they brought me home. I remember seeing my brother Leroy. He was crying. It was the first time him and I ever had a real like moment. We always joke with each other, but like, he missed me, and I was scared to not see him again. And it makes me almost teary-eyed thinking about that. And uh, I was lost, man. I was lost, and and whoever that kid was in that four wheeler found me. So that that was as close as I got to thinking I was really screwed there. Wow! One time I smoked salvia. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the end. And that's a deadly situation. I don't know. Have you? I don't know if you've ever smoked. I, I know have, you have an op. I have. Yeah. That stuff is a wow. That's a roller coaster. Yeah, it's like a poor poor man's DMT. And I was convinced that I could fly down a flight of stairs big flight of stairs and I, just, I smoked it at a frat house which isn't known historically 
to have people in it that are good at decision making or <laughs> fortunately somebody saved me from thinking that I could fly down these stairs on Salvia and then I spent the next 10 minutes just laughing at the floor. Yeah. Salvia is <laughs> the greatest thing ever and I'm going to now that I'm thinking about it I got to get a hold of some of that stuff because <laughs> do you There's no hangover, it lasts like 10 minutes, it gets really intense really quickly and then goes away just as fast. Before they realized really what that was doing to kids, they were selling that at gas stations out here. Yeah, yeah. I bought it at a at a what do they call the places where they sell like bongs and a head shop? Is head shop, sure. Yeah, yeah. Came in a little looked like a dip container that was purple, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it said purple sticky salvia. Mm-hmm. And man, I love that stuff. I smoked it many many times after that, but that was my first experience. And yeah, wow, man, yeah. It's 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 a actual trip. Real fast, I had a, there was a, I was at a party where a guy did eight hits of acid, and he was running around, and we didn't know what to do with the guy. So it reminds me of seeing somebody on Salvia where they're completely out of it. They're like uh, in a dream state, but they're still moving their body around, and you don't quite know what to do with them. But thankfully, it ends after like five, eight minutes, right? Yeah. And they come back, so you just kind of Like you can drive. Out. Mm-hmm. Like that's how. Yeah. It's insane. Well, you're working on like autopilot. But with this acid trip guy, he just wasn't snapping out of it. So we dragged him outside. One person beat him up because they were beating on him. And then we called an ambulance and we held him until we saw the lights coming. And as soon as the ambulance started to pull up, we let go of him and ran away. (laughs) 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 And he got up and they're like, (laughs) Uh, anyways. And, you know, it it hits so hard that you forget you just smoked salvia. Yeah. Like, that's how hard it hits. You immediately forget you just smoke salvia as soon as you yeah. smoke salvia. <laughs> yeah. it, it is, uh, and to somebody that's never smoked it, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, you literally exhale, and then you enter space. <laughs> like, it is, boom. There's nothing else like it, I don't think. No, I don't and think And then so. you just as quickly, 10 minutes later, return back to Earth. Boom. And you're 1 million percent sober. You can drive home. It's like a quick heroin trip. You know? Yeah. You're just right back. Yeah. It's like, uh, you ever got choked out when you were a kid? We used to choke each other out, and then you see him go, oh, out. yeah. And you come back, you'd be like, I just had a dream about my dead great great grandfather. <laughs> yeah. You know? How about you, uh? We'll I don't know that. where to go with. Uh, I love salvia. We've got um, illegal drug use and choking. We're going to start out this. I'm calling the story the Zutang Lifeguard. Okay. Yeah. And this starts in 1988. Now, let's go into 1988 a little bit. Super Mario Brothers 2 had just dropped, and everybody's wondering what the hell's going on with that because it was a really confusing Super Mario Brothers game. I don't know if you ever remembered. Beetlejuice is murdering in the box office, and Faith by George Michael is blaring in everybody's Ford Escort. And that's the most popular selling car of that year. Points on the research there for Kent. Um, I don't know if... I don't know if that was the case in this town where this is taking place because this happened in Zutang in the Jiangsu province of China, specifically a small Cheyenne village uh, there in the Jiangsu, Jiangsu province. Many of them didn't even have electric, so they probably had never seen Beetlejuice, let alone played Super Mario 2, which was just a really bad game. I want to get back into that. What was up with that game? <laughs> it was so weird. They shot... They had the monsters that shot the red balls. Did you know that Super Mario 2 was originally released in Japan? And it was called Doki Doki Panic. <laughs> I didn't know that. And wow. the Super Mario Brothers original game was such a hit that they needed a sequel quick. So they just took this game, Doki Doki Panic, 
and they reskinned it with Super Mario, and that's why Super Mario 2 is so weird compared to all the other Mario games. Uh, Oh, I didn't know That's why none of the villains fit in with the rest of the Mario universe. That's why it's such an oddball. And... Weird. Yeah, anyways, I'm swimming out, out from shore here. Let's get back to the story. I don't know. I think that was about as close to shore as we've swum. Yeah. This, <laughs> I just realized I said something after 10 minutes. Finally, something I could sort of relate with was Nintendo game. You're good, Kent. That's We're coming back into shore, I would say. So anyway, we're, we're at Zoontang in the Jiangsu province, and there's so many kids getting molested. It's not... I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was about to just quit this this whole show. No, there's no molestations in this story. Uh, the the focus of our story today is 50 year old Zhu Wafeng, Zhu spelled X U Wafeng, and his wife Wu Ziumai. And so his name is X U W E I F A N G, and her name is W U X I A O M E I M E I. That clears things up. They're hanging out in their home when they hear a ruckus. Outside, and it was unlike any ruckus they'd ever heard before. It was a real, they lived right on the river, right right on the bank of the river, so it was a very watery ruckus. And at this point, Zhu Wafang, our 50-year-old hero, springs into action like a superhero, like, um, what is that movie that Jason Momoa is when he's playing the the H2O man? Water man. Water guy, our fluid fellow. The water boy. Zhu springs to action like water guy. And he jumps out onto his doorstep, and he notices there in the river a young man that was no older than five years old flopping around in the river that runs alongside his home as as if he can't swim. He's behaving there in the water as if he can't swim. One would even assume he was drowning if you saw this. If you were there seeing what Zhu Wafeng was seeing, you would think this kid is drowning. So Zhu Wafeng makes that assumption like we all would and dives in after him like uh, Michael Phelps um, hearing that there's a dime bag at the bottom of a fishing hole. (laughs) When he gets to the young boy who is out there flailing around and acting a fool out in the middle of the river, he discovers something very scary. Uh, The boy was, in fact, drowning. And his initial diagnosis of the situation was actually 100% correct. So, he grabs the young man by the arm and pulls him to the shore, saving the boy's life, and this young man has always chosen to remain anonymous, but we'll call him uh, Daniel. Uh, he could have been a Daniel. So you chose not to give us, like, easier to consume names for the mom and dad, but we're going with Daniel. Well, I know their names. This was actually their names, but we don't have this kid's name, so we're going with <laughs> Daniel. Xavier might have yeah. been a little bit closer. Can I get an X in there? Now, Zhu Wafang <laughs> had just saved young Daniel's life. Daniel, it turns out, though, would not be the first attempted victim of this murderous, mucky river. Daniel stands up, brushes the mud off his pants, thanks Zuwafang, and then walks off into the sunset, still very moist from almost drowning. Ugh. One of the worst <laughs> words in the world, eh? Uh? Drowning. It's a terrible word. Well, mo- <laughs> drowning. I say moist. Well, he's saying drowning. drowning. Have you noticed that with Kent? He yeah. puts a D in there before the ing. I just want to point that. See out. what it what that is is it's called a a word off ramp. So in mid word he could go, oh is that guy drowned or is that guy drowning? <laughs> it's an off ramp. Like he could take an off ramp at the D and make it drowning or drown or drowning. So it's it's right. yeah it's actually a, <laughs> it's a it's an advanced form of communication he's using. Thank you. Cool, man. I just thought he was stupid. No, it's advanced. No, it's advanced. It's massively incorrect also. It's called evolution. Yeah, well. 
Now, uh, you know, one person, you, you probably listen to this, and, and you guys, op and daddy, can probably assume, what, you know, you probably think one person can only find in their lifetime one person that can't swim and in dire need of a shoreline or an inflatable. But you'd be wrong if you were just thinking that because over the next 30 years, Zhu Wafeng and his wife would pull a total of four other drowning children out of this river beside his house. And perhaps you've probably uh, already figured out where this story is going. You're probably thinking, is there a child murderer running the streets of Zutang and chucking small children into the nearest body of water and then making his getaway on a small blue moped that has a George Michael sticker on it? <laughs> and, and no, that isn't happening at all. That's oddly specific that you thought that. That's not how this story wraps up. Nobody is throwing these children into the river. The children here um, apparently just, uh, they can't they can't swim for shit Swear. and they're very clumsy. Glad we cleared that out. There's not a child murderer. Anyways, he rescues another four children out of that river by his house. None of them have been named either. So all these children are also unnamed. They re- they chose to remain anonymous. So we'll call them uh, Barbara, Reginald, Zangwa, and little Bobby. So the first three were uh, Barbara, Reginald, and Zangwa. And then, but the fourth one we're going to do here is little Bobby. Now, 2016 comes around. Then 78-year-old Zhu Wafeng takes a stumble down a set of stairs at his home and does permanent damage to uh, how would you, like his, his he does permanent damage to his ability to walk without looking like he has permanent disability. So he can't walk he can't walk good or makes him not walk as good. Mhm. Right. Falls down steps. That brings us to August 3rd of 2018. Now Zhu Wafeng is 80 years old. And he's retired, and Zhu Wafang enjoys most of his time at home with his wife, who I said was Wu Zamiao, and helping out the best he can around his community. So he's retired, he's living life with his wife, and Zhu can walk quite a bit, but not as much as a lot. He has a limp, and, he, and he's getting really old. He's really old, but he's 80. He, he's 80 years old. He's Asian, though, so he's probably still got 50 or 60 years left in him. They, they outlive everybody. <laughs> They're like the sea turtles of the human race. (laughs) Holy moly. They do live a long time. Anyhow, like I said, it's August 3rd of 2018. It is 9 a.m. in the morning, to be exact. Zhu and Wu have been up for a moment. They've eaten breakfast, and they're getting ready for their day. But outside, unbeknownst to Zhu and Wu, eight-year-old little Bobby is walking up the shoreline of the river with his grandma, Latricia, she is also unnamed. And uh, <laughs> little Bobby, or Lil Bobby, and Latricia, they are hunting for water chestnuts for their many dishes that they cook involving water chestnuts. I love water chestnuts. I love the crunch. I love the flavor. Water chestnuts are my favorite thing in any kind of Asian dish. I could eat water chestnuts by themselves out of the can. They're the greatest. I believe that they are great. Yeah. I mean, I'll back you up on that. Uh, when I was a kid, I hated them. I feel like they're a really cheap substitute for celery, but whatever. Water chestnuts kick celery in the in the groin, right in the groin, right in the... I feel like <laughs> eating a water chestnut is like what you would experience if you were to eat a baby's ear. Oh, wow. You know, I don't think a baby's ear a would be of, that crunchy. Really? Oh. Just a little bit of a, you yeah, know, it gives that. a little and then pop crunch. Pop crunch. Oh, okay. Pop crunch. <laughs> 
Water chestnuts are yeah. kind of my favorite. Potato chip is a muncho. I've never had a muncho. What's a muncho? It's, they're very crunchy chips. Water chestnuts are the munchos of the vegetative world. And I mean like vegetables, not like, you know, shrabo. Okay. Gotcha. Young little Bobby, you know, he's hunting for water chestnuts with his grandmother, Latricia. And little Bobby loses his footing while standing on the bank and unfortunately uh, goes headfirst into the deep portion of the river. And he probably thinks... Oh, no, you know, I sure am upset that I don't know how to swim right right now before slipping into the icy grip of the very moist water. (laughs) Inside Zoo and Woo, inside the Zoo and Woo household, a familiar ruckus penetrates their very old-ass ears. Uh, A watery ruckus, and Zoo probably thinks either somebody is drowning out there or the the kinky couple next door are getting their kicks off in the bacteria-riddled river again or somebody's smacking the surface of the river with an old ham. Something like that. There's three possibilities here, but it's a watery ruckus. Either way, he better check it out, he thinks. Hopefully it's the couple again, probably. So Zoo once again leaps to his feet like Jason Momoa Liquid Lad and slowly makes his way to the door, but as fast as he can, but he's really old, so probably slow. You guys are enjoying this, aren't you? (laughs) I hope everybody else is. This too. is all true. That's the best part. <laughs> I mean, aside from the couple banging it out in the river, that didn't happen. Ugh. And nobody was slapping the surface of the water with an old ham either. I made that up. That seemed a little more far fetched, but maybe not. I and if we're being completely honest, his grandma's name probably isn't Latricia. Full, <laughs> you know, full disclosure. Now, when Zoo reaches his door and peers out into the water, he sees little Bobby out there flailing about and not doing a good job of staying alive uh, because his head is going underwater a lot and humans need the inside of their lungs to stay mostly dry. Science in years. Zoo makes his way to the shoreline and his wife, Wu, helps him down to the water because of his injuries two years prior in 2016. He's, he's you know, not fully mobile and it's there that he he's an old man. He's not the spry 50-year-old that he once was. You know, the first time he saved one, a kid, going back to little Daniel, he, he dived head first, but now he just kind of stumbles and falls into the water like a drunk. But he's not drunk. He's just old, and he's not capable of diving anymore. He's 80 years old. Give him a break. He goes to the center of the water and pulls little Bobby to the shoreline and has once again saved another life. And this one is in bad shape, though, uh, and has taken a whole lot of murky, poopy, swear words, green water into his lungs. Now, an ambulance is called, and little Bobby is hauled off. Uh, and he did survive. And later that day, Zoo and Wu make their way to the hospital to check up on the boy. They're good. These are good people. These are very good people. They want to make sure that he's okay. They saved his life after all. But guess what, guys? What? Little Bobby died. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh, God. Just giving the outwork. That's all this is. It's a big, giant edit. No, he didn't die. He's very much alive. But once Zoo enters the room, he runs headfirst into little Bobby's dad, face to face, and he peers into the eyes of yet another bad swimmer. Little Bobby's father was Daniel. No. (laughs) Really? Yes. Yes, the young man that also couldn't swim and had genetically, apparently genetically passed on his inability uh, to his son, little Bobby. (laughs) Zoo Wafhang had saved a father and a son 30 years apart in the same spot for the same reason. 
And that's a, that's my hug. And that's my hug. And I do want to say that uh, some of the information I got was from an uh, article uh, from a website called thinkrightme.com that did an article on this story. There's a million articles on it when it happened. It ba- happened back in, like I said, August of 2018. But com for the image to go along with their story, they used a little cracker redheaded white kid drowning. <laughs> and the caption said, a drowning child. So, like, just in case you needed to visualize, yeah. if you needed a picture to go, these are a, yeah. this is a white, freckly, redheaded kid drowning in the water, panicked. And this, like, this is what a drowning child looks like for anybody reading the story needing a visualization of a drowning child. And, and so that's fun. And that's my story. That's a very, that's a good, that's a good story. I like that. It was riddled with, um, I don't even know what it was riddled with. It was riddled with stuff, too. And that's fun. Intensity, suspense, <laughs> yeah. character development. Can't yeah, all that. Cancer. All that. It's like you took a whole it's like you took a whole McDonald's meal and mixed it into a McFlurry. In Asia. <laughs> In Asia. Yeah. With water chestnuts. <laughs> yeah. A lot of delicious. A lot of soy. <laughs> Every bite's a different experience. Well, that was really cool. I like that one. Good job. Good job, both of you so far. Thanks. Uh <clears throat> Uh, you said earlier you're thinking about dropping this whole podcast. Honestly, how, how you how are you feeling? This is not the way that you were hoping this would go, but you have to understand that Kent yeah. and I both have mental illness. <laughs> we're doing right? the best we can. I am just enjoying our time. I wanted... Me too. I have peace in that I have the edit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. I just really enjoy our time together. So you can create a party. You can put out the placemats. You can get out the hats that everybody's supposed to wear to party, and you know, and the finger finger gloves and all that. You can you can prepare the party like you want, but when they show when people show up to party, they're gonna party how they want. Yeah, somebody's gonna pull their paint swearing this out. That's the one part yeah. you can't control for sure. Okay, well, I have a I have a I have a story for you. People always ask others, you know, to try to generate conversation. Tell us something that nobody else knows about you, you know, and then you're supposed to, you know, try to find something that you don't think anybody that's currently heard the show has said or heard you say. I'm going to ask a different question, though. Both of you, tell us something that everybody would say about you if you weren't in the room, whether whether you regret that they would say it or you're pretty sure that everybody thinks this about you um wow he is exhausting (laughs) (laughs) i like him and i like him in small spurts you know what Uh, and i'll make it quick for you uh that's the exact same answer. really you both feel you both feel like uh like you're exhausting to other people i do yeah yeah i see it in their eyes I see, I see it right now in your eyes, actually. Op. This is really weird. And once again, unscripted, but that was going to be my answer is... I was going to say, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, but like I feel the same way about you and I or about yeah. you and Kent. Like Not to keep you out of that, because um, you and I could talk forever, right. right? And then our wives are in the background like, when are these guys going to stop talking to each other? Yeah, I could wear a room out. I can wear a room out. Second to that, the only th- other thing is this is, and this happened on a trip recently where I drove to... Oregon with the neighbor raiders 
and they were they were in a car we were caravanning and they marco poloed back to our car and they're like hey do you know what mountain that is up there and there's this giant mountain in front of us and i confidently said oh yeah that, yeah it's mount shasta mount shasta yep that's mount shasta and uh, I went on and on and on, and I was telling them fun facts to know and share about Mount Shasta and all this. Turns out that was not Mount Shasta. And I have a realization that I could wear a room out, but then at the end of the day, if you were to listen to everything I said, maybe 30% of it is 100% accurate. <laughs> um, and and I, I worry about that. Unless but it involves coins. Time, well, even there. <laughs> Sometimes what I do is I come up with the coin fact and then I try to find history that matches it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's like a reverse yeah. psychology history professor. That's called confirmation bias. <laughs> 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 Which I just call fun. It's exciting. All right. Well, I've got a story for you here. Here we go. Catherine McCarty stood on the second floor balcony of the boarding house that she had started a few years before. She also owned a laundry business down the road and had become a well-respected agent of real estate. On that cool evening, Catherine had just finished telling her eight-year-old son about his father, a hard-working man who brought up his little family in a slum in Manhattan. But he had vowed to never bring a child into this world if it had to be born in the slums. So when Henry, age eight at the time, was born, true to his word, he moved his family to a small town where they built a new life. And then one day in 1862, he passed away, as so many people of the time did, from something that was life-threatening. So life-threatening that it not only threatened his life, but it ended up killing him. This left Catherine and Henry to fend for themselves, but unbeknownst to her husband and everyone that knew her, Catherine was a very intelligent woman, a phenomenon that occurred rather often back then that women went unnoticed in the middle of the 19th century, since women sadly were often not regarded as having an equal footing with men in the intelligence department. With her husband's departure, though, Catherine set out to discover things that she had always been intrigued by. And it seemed that whatever she decided to look into, she became a success in. So she was doing her best to raise Henry, who was only three when her husband died. Geometrically, just a bit larger than the original baby size that he had come into this world as. Catherine's best was better than most, though. And Henry thrived under her motherhood. He worked hard at her side in whatever business she was working in. He grew capable, and she encouraged him to use his intelligence to do as she had done. And look at the world in new ways to make the most of any situation and use your time and talents to create success. So when Henry was 12, he asked his mother, Mother, will it always be like this? Would they always work side by side, working together, building up businesses and contributing to the town, thriving as they worked? To which she replied, oh, yes, I would be happy and proud if we were always to be like this. The end. Just kidding. <laughs> this, this new life consumed both of their days from sunup to sundown, and they found peace in working together to build this life. That is, until Catherine's life was consumed by consumption, or tuberculosis, as it is more commonly known today. Her cough became so bad along her final two years on this earth that Henry quit school to care for her. 
Just as his mother had taught him, his hard work seemed to be paying off as she seemed to be rounding a corner and improving. But then one day her cough was accompanied by a handkerchief full of blood, and the end was soon upon her. Fifteen-year-old Henry never left her bedside for the final four months of her life, feeding her, bathing her, and doing all that he could to ease her pain. Catherine's passing pressed Henry to use his intelligence and work ethic to drive harder, to develop new resources, to commit his life to new discoveries. That is, he drove harder into his newfound interest in drinking. He developed new resources to fund his gambling habits that he had now formed in his grief at being left alone in the world. And he was committed to discovering all things that lie at the bottom, the very underbelly of what life had discarded. The powerful person he had become was still there, but he had shed his good heart and kind nature for the exact opposite. Henry knew that his mother would not be able to lie in peace if she knew what he had become, so to spare her grief in the next life, he changed his name and continued on his path. Under his new alias, Henry would terrorize, steal, kill, rattling whole portions of the United States in fear and trembling if they heard he was nearby. But remember, this devil was first an angel, having been brought into this life by two loving parents who worked tirelessly to show him how to be a good kid. But for all of their guidance, he seemed to be frozen in time as this 15-year-old kid whose life was turned upside down by life. Henry, frozen in his grief, would never find peace again, a kid, chilled by life, turned to scorch the earth that he walked on. Still a kid, refusing to become a man, but instead a monster that we all know as Billy the Kid. Nice. Nice. That's awesome, man. I feel like uh, the operator continues to show us what he thinks hugs should be, (laughs) and we keep on letting him down. (laughs) So here's my final commentary on this is we oftentimes, you know, draw that line between a bad person and like, oh, how were they raised? How, you know, how could this possibly be? But we're all flawed, right? We're all hurting. And in some cases, you know, the law or life or death catches up to us before before we round a corner and maybe become wiser and act different or act better. Sometimes life doesn't work like we want it to. The thing I really like about this story is that it gives me kind of new eyes on people that I usually would look at as just the refuse, you know, the the person that's caused too much pain in the world. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not worth my time. He's not worth me looking at him anymore or her anymore. This, this gives you an understanding that pain is a reflex to something always, It's a response from something. And the way that we lead our lives is a response from something. And if we can keep that in mind, we we will lose this kind of microwave generation that we seem to have bred where we believe wars should take a day and that people that don't think the same as us should be jettisoned from existence. And even those who live or love differently than us shouldn't be allowed to. This tells us, hey, we all got to where we're at somehow. And even the worst of the worst, there's some string that's still tied to them to a 
good thing at some point in their life. I agree. There are a lot of people who become like alpha males or alpha women, females, whatever, and they take charge and everyone else around them wilts, but they'll continue doing that because now suddenly that works, right? But these, these people need you to interact with them as well and come up to that level and speak on that level too and guide them there as well. Often we just let people off the chain. Once they're off the chain, respect for getting off the chain. Mm-hmm. And now you lead, I guess. But it's up to a lot of us to like get up there with them and, and be like, okay, a lot of what you're doing is good. A lot of what you're doing, like a lot of the force and the power and the will that you're displaying is can be uh, jettisoned into a, to a better path if I can get up there with you. Unfortunately, more often than not, people who get off the chain and go off and they jettison into these places where power or, or whatever else, they continue just to be on this level where it's only them up there. They just keep on working with what's worked already, which is aggression and forcing it forward, and it becomes soured at some point. A lot of people that take advantage of other people do so because they know so well how normal people respond to conflict. It can become a drug for people to know, oh, no, I can cut in line because four out of five people won't say a thing and five out of five people aren't going to do anything about it. Yes. You know what I mean? We live in this world where there are some people that just know this about us and they get drunk on that on that authority, on that, on the way of living, uh, you know, and it's, it's not always just the Karen in the Range Rover. There are a lot of people from all walks that have figured this out, that done the math that good people can be pressed uh, and that good people won't always press back. Well, there co- there comes a point to, to what you're saying, like with a Billy the Kid, right, where it's like you reach a point where you've gone through so much where you suddenly do this thing where you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to stop caring what, about what anybody thinks, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that could be positive in a lot of ways, but for the most part it ends up being negative. And again, to what I'm saying, like, you go ultra, ultra, I don't care what anybody thinks, you're going to start affecting a lot of weak people in a negative way, and it'll go to what Kent and I were saying about ourselves, where it's like, that guy's a lot. Or about you, Op, like, that guy's a lot. He's taking charge in almost all these situations, because obviously they won't think this, but, like, he's tired of dealing with the way that everybody else is dealing with things, so he's going to take charge. But then it gets poisoned after a while, you become too high in yourself, and, 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 and it gets nasty, and you become a dictator, in, in maybe in some ways, right? Everybody needs to lift up a little bit and uh, <clears throat> stop being so apathetic, I guess. Kent, I have a question for you. In your time in the military, I just had this thought that, like, in some cases, we are as humans thrown into environments where our presence is so absolute that there is power that can be abused. Do you think that that is in the military? Is that something that when you are a group of ragtag soldiers in a town full of people that couldn't even beat you in an arm wrestling match, let alone a gun? Oh, you mean to the locals and everything there? I thought you meant like as far as like seniority and rank, you know, to a staff sergeant, to a lance corporal or something like that. You mean like us versus them kind of thing? Is There's enough documentaries now to know that your missions over there oftentimes were as political as they were confrontational. Yes. That, uh, you know, there were, there were brief cases of cash that your, maybe your, your superior had, and he'd meet with a mullah or somebody local, you know, a local person, and money would change. You know, there wasn't all about just shooting bad guys. Right. But was there, was there also an element where soldiers got drunk on their power? You know, I did two deployments. Both to Afghanistan, 
First one was in Marja. Second one was all over the Helmand province. I never once, not once, saw an instance of that in terms of mistreating civilians. What a lot of people don't realize, uh, especially people who talk sh- talks almost at a, a swear word. <laughs> when people talk smack about our presence in Afghanistan, what they don't know because they haven't been there is that a large portion of the populace there civilian-wise, are so thankful that we're there. And that's the people Mm -hmm. that are born and raised there. And they would give us, you know, naan, which is bread, and tea, any chance that they could. Um, We had one fellow that we would always patrol past his his house, and he would try to make us take his daughters with us as a gift, which... Wow, um, as a gift. No thanks. You know, appreciate the offer. But... (laughs) Yeah, tough to stuff that in the bag. It's already got three... Five-year-olds yeah. stuffed in there. Uh, and, and, our, and our point, our purpose there, uh, and, and I'm, you know, a lot of people bring up oil, and I'm sure that there was, there was probably some contributing factors as far as that goes. But our purpose there, as far as we were concerned, was to train the ANA, the Afghan National Army, to be able to control their, their own backyard, to train them to. Mm-hmm. So what we were doing was getting them ready because we're going to leave. Look, guy, we're going to leave. You need to be able to defend yourself because just because we're gone doesn't mean that all the bad guys are going to be gone. You know? Right, right. So what a lot of, and this doesn't get talked about a lot, a lot of what we were doing was training on patrol in real time. They were getting, you know, <laughs> on-the-job training on how mm-hmm. to handle a firefight, on how to handle coming across an IED, on how to handle um, interrogation on how, how to handle all these situations that they're going to have to deal with themselves whenever we aren't there anymore, and how to hold the fort, so to speak, and not let the Taliban continue to harass and control the population. In terms of, no, no, I never saw, I never, not once, not once did I see uh, any of my fellow brethren uh, mistreat a civilian that wasn't, in the wrong in any way whatsoever. In fact, it was the opposite. Uh, oftentimes, we would give our MREs that we had on our person uh, to the people. I loved personally giving candy to the kids because it lit their. It was that's like giving them a new PlayStation Five here in the United States. It it also also got them into and your it, backpack. You could, <laughs> yeah, what easier. I would do is I would lay my LB pack down on the ground with it open, and I would make a trail of M and M's into the, and it had a stick holding it up and. <laughs> yeah. I caught so many that way. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, no, no, man. I never saw that. I never saw that. I was asking you in real time because I was wondering if I could make a parallel with kind of Billy the Kid, you know, being drunk on his power. But it's actually more encouraging that you say that, that uh, the civility rules the day, that everything, you know, and we'll be light on commentary on what the media does. But I do believe, like right now, where you were, where you were over there, is now in new conflict because we pulled out. And the way that it's translated to us here, it's it's so polarizing. It's so it, but but the humanness of it is lost. The civility of the protectors, the the people that are trying to train, all that is is lost. And what's left there are these raw emotions where they want you to believe that it's us versus them. And and it's encouraging to hear you say that because I think if it's ironic in a way to say that there's civility in war. But in truth, I think wars only come to an end because civility ends up 
ruling the day at some point. You well, know? you know, there was many – we became friends with a lot of the civilians there, guys that we would look forward to seeing when we patrolled past their house, people that we genuinely cared for, people that we would be up – we would – it would be a personal thing if something happened to them, just mm-hmm. civilians that were out in the town that we were we were patrolling, and there was no need. And there was certainly probably Marines that had a little bit more of, of uh, maybe, I don't know, racism or whatever you would call it. But if that was the case, it would have never been allowed. It would have, if, if they had tried something, anything ever, they would have been snatched up in an instant and probably sent to the brute. Like that, that shit would not have flown. It would not have flown. Mm. That's, why, that's why I miss Vietnam and the possibility of going to a Vietnam. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Yeah, the days when you could just be openly against everybody that looks like the person that you're fighting. That's... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> to be a serial killer in Vietnam, you know? Boy, I'll bet you there's a whole volume of, of books there that could be written if we just knew the facts. But I'll bet you there's been a handful of serial killers that came out of Vietnam. Oh, yeah, look at the 70s. <laughs> we also, but because of Vietnam, fun movie fact, and I know people probably get tired of hearing this. Without Vietnam, we wouldn't have gotten Tom Savini. That's true. Tom Savini got a lot of his movie. Do you know who Tom Savini is? Up? Yeah. Jack? No. He's like the most famous makeup artist in history. He did the special effects for like, he created Jason Voorhees. He, he worked on Creep Show. The list goes on and on. He's, he's worked on everything that is known as a special effects, you know, moment in history. Right. It was his experiences in Vietnam and seeing legitimate wounds legs amputated legs ripped off bullet wounds blast wounds where he that's the reason that a lot of his effects later on were so realistic where he won awards because he would just go off his what he saw in vietnam so right have you ever seen from dusk till dawn well you're telling me we wouldn't have had that without vietnam i don't know god thank thank goodness for vietnam man apex (laughs) of hollywood effects would not have been uh been been uh, at our disposal had that not so much so much was this, of this was unscripted <laughs> yeah we went on a side quest there bugs anyway <laughs> i don't really have a good way to end this one no i mean it started off rough and uh, you know hugs the 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 podcast is turning out to be but i hoped it would be it's you need a hug when you're done yeah you need a hug we all need hugs and on that oh Someone is at the front door. Well, <laughs> well, guys, I got to go. <laughs> you do? Okay, guys. Hugs. See ya. <laughs> <That was funny. laughs>